Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone. On today's podcast, I'm with Callum Helliwell, a young man who is currently a Sky Sports racing researcher who recently featured on Sky Sports documentary, The Uncomfortable Race with Josh Appiaffi. Thanks for joining me today, Callum. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, diversity and inclusion in British horse racing, like where we are now, uh, what measures are being taken, and progress. But to begin with, could you let me know how you first got into horse racing? Just your very early days. Super early days. Um, I started riding when I was five. I wanted to ride from the age of three, but my mum and my dad were like, there is no riding school that will take a three-year-old to ride a horse. Uh, so I had to wait until I was five, was whacked up on a little Shetland pony called Holly and fell in love with, this, with horses from that moment on. I think around eight years old, I discovered the morning line. Uh, John McCruick sat on a desk at eight o'clock in the morning with apparently what I wanted to watch instead of any other normal children of the TV show. And I kind of got hooked from there. And I, I was into racing from that point on. And I always wanted to become a jockey. So eventually I was riding out um, at a show jumping livery um, on uh, all my weekends, just spending a lot of time mucking out boxes, leading up showers, then sort of doing a bit of spare jumping in my time. Uh, but eventually I got offered a position to ride out for Di Grizzell, uh in uh, East Sussex. And I used to write point to point for her. And that's how I first got it, my first interracing job. All right. Well, that's a good start. Um, so uh, you started at a very young age. Uh, I just see you there watching the morning line. No one else in the family was watching with you then? No. No one else in the family, no one else in the family was up <laughs> at that point. Uh, no, I, I, <laughs> no, no one was really about at that stage. No, so my parents aren't interested in the sport at all. Uh, my grandmother was a gambling addict, apparently. So that's where they think I get it from. Uh, but no, there was no real connection to racing. There was no, no there was no connection to racing at all. Um, both my parents were professionals in mental health, 
and um, that's where their that's where their passions lay. Um, my dad's a big Formula One fan, so I couldn't get away from that. But uh, I was the only one into racing. Right. Well, moving on to the important subject of diversity and inclusion. Um, to start with, where do you think uh, British horse racing is now on those two two subjects? Um, in comparison to other racing jurisdictions, we're very far ahead. Um, I was lucky enough to spend time in New Zealand. Uh, I worked at the Lavendale Stud in New Zealand for a yearling prep season, and I have never seen a country more segregated when it comes to sport. Um, examples being that I wanted to play rugby uh, while I was over there, because obviously you're in New Zealand, you've got to go and play rugby. And there were two teams. There was the native teams and there was the non-native team. And that, for me, was shocking because I thought, well, that, that, that sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? And everyone's just, that was the way it worked. And later on, I discovered that when you go out in a club, you can either go to a native club or a non-native club. And for me, that level of segregation and distance between two groups of races was something I'd never seen in the UK. Like, I, I know we have our problems in the UK, but when it comes to race relations, we are actually doing a lot better than some other countries do. And within racing, although we are chronically behind other sports in the UK, if you compare our jurisdiction to jurisdictions such as Australia, New Zealand, America, we are much better when it comes to diversity. We're not great. In fact, we're pretty poor, but we are better than some other nations. Well, that's interesting to hear. But the, um, as you say, we have got some problems and they were uncovered in the documentary, The, Un- the Uncomfortable Race, could you just, again, sort of highlight some of those problems? I know we've, it's, it's lack of black jockeys, black trainers. Um, yeah, um, I think we look at the sport through a hole within the UK. Um, we just start with spectators on a race course. So many of our race courses are within one train journey from a major city. And we already know that diversity within major cities and people from a diverse background is at, are at around 33%, especially within London. So when, when we get to the race courses, why are there so few people of diverse backgrounds on a race course? British racing is one of the few sports which is still majorly dominated by a white audience, um, which is something that I find quite shocking whenever I go to race course because I didn't notice it because I was so comfortable on the race course that it was something that didn't really matter to me. However, looking at it from someone else who is not a massive fan of racing, who is coming to enjoy a day out at the sport, would definitely be quite intimidating to go to a British race course right now because just the environment that it, that it is created, where you have alcohol, you have betting, you have lots of people who are really pumped up in excitement because it is such an exciting, such a wonderful sport. It could be quite intimidating for someone who doesn't look like everybody else to come into that environment. Now, you look at within the sport itself, black trainers, there aren't any. Non-white trainers, they're o- the only ones that there are have been... Um, successful outside the UK and have then come into the UK. Black jockeys, we've got Royston French, we've got Sean Levy, we've got Kaya Fraser, who's just coming through now. Um, I think the great thing about Sean and what some people call great and what other people would find quite sad, really, is that Sean would not be the first person to express the fact that he is black. Sean would very much like to be called a jockey and not a black jockey. And I think Sean has really use that to his advantage when coming up through the ranks of being a very good rider for O'Brien and then coming over to the UK and now settling at Hannon's is that he's never been described as a black jockey. He's always just been a jockey. He's not used his race as a mean to get forward or as a way to hold him back, which I think can be viewed in very, in very different ways. Uh, Royston French, obviously the first name that I 
ever came across. Uh, and I really noticed him when he was riding winners overseas. And that was such a massive inspiration for me as a young black guy coming through. But again, Royston has, has been quite open in the leading the way documentary that was made about him. Um, was very, very cagey when discussing racial incidents that he'd had in a wearing ring, saying he'd had them, but he didn't really want to discuss them and talk about them. So again, we look at all these impacts across the sport, all these different groups within the sport, and there is this definite lack of diverse people. And that is within a question as a whole, but I think that's something we can change and something that I hopefully want to be a part of that change. Well, one area where there has been more diversity, obviously, is in women's jockeys, or we shouldn't call them women's jockeys. Now, we've got some very high-quality jockeys in Rachel Blackmore, Bryony Frost and Holly Doyle. Yeah, um, I, I actually was recently at a, the Windsor Horse Racing Conference, sorry, the Horse Racing Conference at Windsor. Um, and although we do have three very prominent female jockeys, if you look at the sport across as a whole, we still are not doing enough to support female jockeys. In fact, female jockeys, through the statistics which we were shown, were outriding their position in the betting market by two places. It literally is mathematically correct. If you back in a in race is more than eight runners and you get three places each way, it is strategically within your favour to back a female jockey fifth in the betting or higher because to treat statistically, she will outride her odds. That is genuine facts that are out there. And yet still, we only have three really strong, continuously being pushed and pushed out into the public eye. Four, if you want to include Nicola Curry as well, because I think she's done incredible work this year. Um, but that still isn't enough or reflective of their talent. They win the Shergar Cup on a regular occurrence. They're, I think they've been the leading rider of Shergar Cup in four of the last five years. Now, if <laughs> If that can be our only fair test where we have an even spread of horses amongst agendas, then surely people need to see that these girls should be getting far more rides than they're getting at the moment. I think Rachel has done incredibly well in Ireland. And to bring that success over here and do so well at Cheltenham and then to go out and win the Grand National was spectacular. But we can't just sit at, sit there and say, well, we've done enough now with diversity. We've, we've, we've got Rachel Blackmore. We've got Holly Doyle. We've got Brian, we've got Bryony Frost, we've got Nicola Curry, that should be enough. No, it should be we've got these, what can we do now more? What can these girls leave as their as their as their legacy within the sport? What is the legacy of these girls? Is it just gonna be we did that and nothing else changed, or is it gonna be more people are coming through and gonna get to the top of our sport who are not all the same? Are there more people gonna get to the top of our sport who aren't just white males within the mm-hmm. riding side? Because I think the British Racing School sort of graduates, there's far, far more um, young girls that go through the British Racing School than boys. Yeah, and I, we, I spoke to a lot of the guys at, who were from the British Racing School and from the jockey coaching side of things, and they said a famous, famous example was when Kieran Fallon um, was doing his uh, licensing course, his apprentice course. Uh, he was on a course with a couple of other guys and three other girls. And they all said, what, we, what are your career aspects? The first guy wasn't Kieran. The other guy said, I want to write out, I want to, uh, write out my claim. Uh, all three of the girls said, I want to get a ride. Kieran Fallon said, I want to be champion jockey. That's the difference. It's the difference of expectations that they're setting upon themselves because there has been no one there to, to push them forward themselves. There's been no one there to push the message that you can be whatever the hell you want to be. You can be as good as you want to be. You can be as good as any guy. 
you can be as good no matter who you are. If you are good enough and you work hard enough, you can get there. And unfortunately, at this moment in time, we still haven't created that inclusive environment which allows people who have the most talent to reach the top because there are still other, the other elements going on within the sport which people aren't able to maybe reach the potential that they themselves have set. So on those points, why do you think we are in the position we are in today? I think it's a, it's a generational thing. I think nepotism is a such a strong point within the horse racing industry. I think I think a lack of effort from those at the top of the sport who are profiting from the lack of diversity within the sport. I think if you are giving roles to people who are educated in the same establishments as you are working in the same establishments as you and you give those people those roles and you continue to give those roles and they go down within friends then unfortunately we won't see any change um i think it starts right at the bottom with pony club uh, i have been mad into horses my whole life and have never once been able to go to pony club because i've never once been able to own or lease my own horse because doing that wasn't a financial opportunity for my parents and i think that's the same for many people regardless of race is that their, their financial opportunity to be getting involved with horses isn't, they're not able to do that. Now you hear of all these people within racing that are all connected through different equestrian exploits, anything from pony club to hunting to any equestrian exploit you can think of. They're all part of similar circles. And when people within those circles are only bringing up those who are part of the same circle, it means that there is no spread of diversity. It means that there is no inclusive attitude because everyone within that circle is supporting itself. They're all supporting one another. And what I want to do is I want to come into the industry and create a change, which then says, let's look for the best people. Let's not look for the ones who are our closest allies. Let's look for the best people. It's not about lowering the bar. It's about widening the goalposts and allowing more good quality applicants to have the opportunity to work in high roles within the industry, whether that be on the ground with horses directly or out within various different other organisations in racing. We're a massive industry. We should be looking to diversify all the way through. Because there must be a vast pool of talent um, outside of the, the racing bubble that we're in at the moment. And I know you recently attended. Um, horse racing and industry conference um, were you yeah. a guest speaker there I, I spoke there yes I spoke there with Ashley Richard and Susanna Gill uh, Susanna Gill who heads up the diversity and inclusion um, steering group at the British Horse Racing Authority and Ashley who is traveling head person for Neil Holland uh, we had a discussion that was led by Ollie Bell um, it was brilliant having having him there and having so many wonderful people to listen to and, and talk with and we, we basically discussed everything that we're discussing now, Stephen. We discussed how... And did that talk about measures that, you, that can now be taken to improve the current sort of state of affairs? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was, there was discussions about... I've always been a massive advocate for um, quiet zones with on-race courses, which are zones which don't include alcohol or gambling. Uh, I think that was something that we really talked about and pushed forward. And the idea that maybe these zones would encourage people who come from communities where gambling and alcohol is forbidden actually to be able to feel safe enough to come racing. Um, And uh, we look at what Bobby Beavers has done with the autism in racing and creating those safe zones across race courses. It was incredible. And the reaction to that was really positive. So I think that's something race courses and there were a lot of race course representatives there. We said that's something that can be looked at. 
there was other another great point that Ashley made is we need to do a lot more about connecting with non-rider roles. Uh, something that I know Josh Apiafi is really pushing himself, but Ashley mentioned this is working with charities that work with lots of ex-convicts and kids that have been excluded from schools. And maybe that there are major opportunities of employment within racing. And we talk about racing having staffing issues throughout. We talk about it on race courses today. And there, there were stories coming out of Champions Day of people missing races because they're in queues. And the fact that we actually need to be looking at what employment opportunities can these race courses offer, which to parts of society that they may not have looked at before. And actually broadening our horizons and actually giving people an opportunity and a chance. Uh, we talk about horses getting second chances. We should really be trying to offer people second chances too. And I think the overall conversation that Susanna, Ashley and I were, were having was saying that there are so much talent that we're missing out on, whether it be from a riding or non-riding perspective. And it's about us actually as an industry of horse racing, reaching out to those people and giving people an opportunity rather than, rather than worrying about our own racing bubble and saying, oh, there's nothing for us. It's all going wrong within the racing bubble. And let, let's try and reach out. And how can you reach out to, because racing, one of its disadvantages, I suppose, which is not their fault, because being a rural sport, you're missing out on so many people who live in cities. I mean, there are, have been initiatives done by individuals like uh, Freedom at the Urban Equestrian Academy, and they've now got the Khadija Mella um, Rider Dream Academy. Rider Dream, yeah. How else can you reach these people in, in the city areas? to you know, get them interested in the sport in both riding and non-riding? Uh, you have to physically go. Um, I think racing to school does a magnificent job of actually going and meeting these, especially with kids, and we talk about just talking about young people, meeting kids face-to-face. Um, as they get older, I know more and more unis are having racing societies, which can be brilliant. Um, they, I think they had a they had a bit of a reputation of being quite an elitist society to begin with, but I think as times move forward and the words of inclusion and diversity stem very much in these university educational places, that they those places can be fantastic to get people who maybe have been interested in racing but actually haven't had the confidence to go, but to go with other people and to go alongside their classmates. Um, but I think we have to go out and, and find people. We have to go out and say that this is a massive opportunity. It's not only a great employer, but it's something that can take you all over the world. It's a job that has so many different avenues and so many different skill sets that it's almost like anyone can work within racing because there will be a role for you. So if, although it is hard to go out and go out and find these people, it is paramount that we do. And it's paramount that funding should be put in place that that can happen. And I know the Racing Foundation does an incredible job of giving funding and boosting so many studies and understanding of what we can do better. And now it's about reacting to those studies, seeing what we've done, seeing how we can improve it, and then seeing the the results of that. And going out into these schools, going out into inner city areas where there aren't any fields and there aren't any gallops to use but to actually get people to come to our sport and to give them an opportunity to come along and see how great it is and think well maybe actually i can be involved in this uh, the step on track program that the uh, bha is running now for its second for its second season i think it's brilliant about getting people that have an interest but have no idea how to get into the sport who can't do it through the graduate program or the development program today they're not old enough 
or B, they haven't come from that educational background which would allow them to be successful on those courses. But actually giving those people who have an interest, because if you've got an interest in this sport, we should be gunning for you. This sport is great. And if you're interested, fantastic. Not only can we get you, not only can we go in and, and push you even more towards your interest, you can actually get a job in it. I, I know people who are so jealous of what I do for a living because I get to have, I do what, what I love for a job. So many people out there don't get to do that. Stephen, you right. said it yourself, you worked at a bank because it was a safe job. Yeah, like I, exactly. I, I, you're, 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 in a, you're in a very lucky position um, yeah, and, to be doing and, a job that you really love. And there must, be, there must be, as you say, a lot of people who would like to get involved but don't know how to. And it's reaching out to these to. people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and it's about yeah. reaching out and, and, and a clear pathway to get in from a non-rider. A clear pathway to get Because if you want to ride, there's plenty of opportunities. There's plenty of pathways. There's three racing schools now, British Racing School, National Horse Racing College, Scottish Racing Academy, all three of them doing things slightly differently, but all three of them doing a fantastic job. But um, are they attracting, you, you talk about there's, there's places for them to go with the racing schools, but um, are they, how do they reach out to the people in the, in the cities? And are they getting uh, a lot of people I, I from their, those areas? I, yeah. I think they are beginning to. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's very easy for us to say, if it's not happening right now, it's not good enough. But I think if you talk to people within those organisations, um, I spoke to Eleanor, who is one of the heads of the Scottish Racing Academy, and their message is that they, they've actually got lots of different academy centres based around the country. So what it allows is that people who are, these young people who may only be 16 years old, aren't leaving home as far as it would be if they were going to somewhere else. So beforehand, when the National Horse Racing College was the Northern Racing College, it was a big trip. If anyone wanted to, to go to there from Scotland, it's, it was a big trek down to Doncaster. For a 16-year-old, being homesick, a completely different environment, a very rigid training programme, it can be a lot for someone to take on. So what different colleges are doing now is they're giving the kids more of an opportunity and becoming more diverse through doing that. Going almost going to the children rather than the children coming to them, and it's a big step and it takes a lot and there is a lot of finance involved in it, but it will reap the rewards later on when we start seeing this diversity of thought, not just diversity of looks, diversity of thought, different ideas coming into the industry, and that I think is crucial. Because once you've got role models, then you then there's more potential for um, young black boys and girls to then want to get involved in racing even seeing yourself here um people are going to want to be the next callum heliwell oh god forbid (laughs) (laughs) no um i I think we we do lack a tiger woods um unfortunately within racing uh we lack a william sister and look at what rachel's done um for for women uh for women jockeys across across britain and ireland you you hear about all these kids coming to school dressed up as jockeys now which is something that we'd never heard of before. I think that's fantastic. Khadija has done incredible work. I think can't over, overstate how much she's done, uh, especially within her own community, giving women just a, a role in sport, but also being so successful and being so good at what she does. And I know a lot of people would like to berate it because she doesn't work in racing anymore or she's not directly involved in the sport, but her just being able to wear hijab ride, ride in the race, come out on top, fantastic. For her to then continue to support the sport from where she is, even better. We should be clapping our hands at what she's doing. Would I call her a racing icon as someone that people could look up to? Maybe not, 
And that's something that we've got to look at getting through. We've got to look at now getting, we want to have someone, I look at Kaya Fraser at the moment, who's ridden a few times, but it's it's for someone like Kaya or, and you don't want to put all the responsibility on him, but you want to have people like him coming up through the sport and eventually being seen every Saturday. We we do have Sean that's been seen every Saturday, but like I've mentioned before, he doesn't want that burden. He, he He's not interested in that burden. And I I'm, I don't want to speak for him because I don't think that's fair, but I don't believe that that's, that's the way he he's looking to go and all power to him for that. But what we do... What I'd really love to see in my lifetime is someone coming up who doesn't look like the norm, who can be seen every Saturday, who's riding in races, riding in decent races, and not necessarily being champion jockey, but showing it can be done. Because I think, like you said, Stephen, if you see it, you can believe it. And that's the inspiration we're looking to take on further. And progress-wise, on a positive note, I do think that more discussions, more podcasts. It's more, more, there's more talk of, of diversity and inclusion on television, on radio, on social media, which probably should be used even more. Uh, that must all be helping. Oh, it's hugely positive. Stephen, we're having this conversation right now. That's massively positive. That's a change. What we're doing here is creating change. It's a lot. And for a lot of people, it can be quite scary. And I totally understand why some of these podcasts and some of these conversations get very negative, visceral reactions. But it's not to be scared of, it's to be embraced. Because it's not about bringing people in on tokenism. It's about opening up, uh, opening up our eyes and seeing what we can, seeing how many good people are out there that could make our sport better. And that is throughout, that's not just sport, that's in life in general. Why do you think all these Fortune 500 companies have got massively diverse workforces because they know that diversity of thought can lead to much greater um, business performance. It's not crazy to think that in 20 years' time, we'll have trainers coming in doing things completely differently to now. But that will only happen if we diversify, because if everyone continues where we're going, thinking the same thing, then unfortunately nothing is going to change. The Riding a Dream Academy is opening people's eyes, thinking that black people can ride horses. How crazy is it to, for people to understand that? And then people single-handedly trying to say that if you've got a hijab, you can't ride. Khadija's blown that out of the water. It shouldn't matter what item of religious clothing you have to wear, you can still ride. The sport should be open to you. And I think what we're doing now is making a change. And I look at the future and I think this is a massively positive step because it, I can't see us going back because I can see it only getting better. And I hope people like myself and, and people all across industries, industries in general, keep pushing for this change because it's not just about, and I think a lot of people like to, to, to degrade the movement by saying it's about hiring more brown people. It's about hiring more people who are from a different religion. It's not about doing that, but it's about opening up our opportunities to employ more people of different backgrounds if they are good enough. But at the moment, we're not even trying to find those people. So it's about opening, just opening it up and actually getting people into the interview room who are actually, oh, wow, I've never thought about having someone like you working for us before. But you, your ideas are fantastic. I've never, I've never even thought of doing this, but you've just thought of this, and that's a great idea. That can make our company better. I, I remember when Martin, I remember reading Tony McCoy's autobiography, and um, he's talking about working with Martin Pipe. And Martin Pipe said he got in athletes so just normal track athletes and said what is the importance of the start to you 
And he said, he spoke to 100 meter runners and 100 meter runners and 200 meter runners, sprinters, whatever. They were all saying the start is crucial. Martin Pipe's horses always started fast. They led every step of the way and they jumped like bucks and they won. Make a stand, champion hurdle, prove my age, the year I was born, but that was a massive McCoy fan. So from the front, in the lead, never saw another horse because Martin Pipe realised that he could take advantage of everybody else circling around at the start and milling around and going off at their own pace to dictate the fractions. Seb Sanders, a presenter at Sky, he loves front-running rides. He said, you can destroy your rivals running from the front. That idea within itself only came about because Martin Pipe divert, had the thought about diversity. He used the diversity of thought. He brought, he brought in someone who wasn't within horse racing, wasn't within our sport as a whole, and said, what do you do in your world, which I can use in my world to give me a competitive advantage? That's diversity. And that's something that I think can be used across our sport. Different ideas can take you from here and can raise you all the way up. And I just think if we, if we refuse to do it, we'll get left behind. And I don't think we will refuse to do it, but I think those that do it first will reap the rewards quicker. I think it's up to whoever wants to take that plunge and do it first. Well, great to hear your passion and positivity there. And, uh, and racing, like all sports, and has to reflect the society we live in, if it's going to progress in the future. Yeah, absolutely. We, 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 are, we call ourselves a sport of kings, which is good and bad, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I think you, you, you do find yourself racing as an elite sport. It always has been an elite sport. It's very much in that realm of Formula One where money talks and you just look at the sales at tax and the money that goes, goes around for these untried horses is, is crazy money. But we are not a society that is ruled by kings anymore. We're a society which is very diverse, very different, multilingual, multicultural. We should be encouraging, we should be encouraging that on our race courses. I think the cult faith of all of this is on our race courses. Where are we going to see the different faces at Royal Ascot, at Cheltenham? I'm going to Cheltenham tomorrow. Can't wait. Very excited. I know I won't see, on a race course actually, not working at the event, it's something I'll bring up in a second, but not working on the race course, I may see less than 20 other faces who are not white. I think that's something that we really need to look at. Why are we not attractive to people who are not from similar backgrounds to what we're seeing on race courses. What are we doing that isn't attractive? Because this isn't a new problem. This is a problem that we've known for a long time. And whether we want to call it a problem or not, it's, it's an issue. So what are we doing to address that issue? And wh- what are we not doing at the moment that's leading people not to want to come? And I think that's crucial. And I think there are plenty, and I think it's all about data. And there are plenty of people far smarter than me which can access that data, break that data down and understand where it's coming from. So hopefully in the future, and the, the thing I want to see immediately happen is I don't just want to see black people behind the bar serving pints. I don't want to see black people just bust in working in restaurants. I want to see black people enjoying a day at the races. I want to see different of different people of different cultures, people of different religions, people of different sexual orientations. I don't care who you are if you come along and enjoy the day out because it's a great day out, Stephen. You and I both know that. It is a cracking day. And I, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to get to John. I haven't been there for years. So I'm very, very excited. And um, I just hope that one day maybe I'll get to tell them and I'll just see a few more different faces and a few more people all enjoying the day. 
and hopefully that's where we'll go. That's 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 a, that's what I'm looking for. Well, with people like you pioneering it, um, we've we've got a we've got a chance. Uh, but anything, any action taken, they've got to keep monitoring. And, and uh, if we set targets that you know they they're monitored and 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 people keep looking at different ways. If one way doesn't work and another way, it's not a position now where racing can just sit on its laurels and say, "Oh, we tried, we failed." Is it? Exactly, exactly. And that's when I bring up the data argument again. These things have to be captured. In, a, in some form of data management, because unfortunately, it could be like you just said, it could be one of those things where um, we, we try it, we try something, it doesn't work. We try something, you have a couple of bad experiences, it doesn't work, we don't try it again. And we go right back to where we were at the beginning. So it's crucial that if we try something, it doesn't work, we need to look at, okay, why didn't it work? What happened which didn't make it work? What was the catalyst for this, this not to fail, but to not work in the way we wanted it to work? And then when we see that, we then make adjustments, make changes and try it again. Because I don't think we can be arrogant enough to say that people from a diverse background don't like horse racing. And I think that is a very arrogant and quite detrimental way to think about, firstly, people from a diverse background and first think about our sport. Because we need to come up with the assumption that I think 80% of British society would love to go for a day at the races. I think the other 20% are those people who think on an animal rights ground it shouldn't happen. But I don't think we should be focusing on that 20%. Let's look at that 80% and work out what is going on that means that a lot of them will sit and watch the Grand National and have a bet on the Grand National, but wouldn't dream of going to entry. What can we do to try and get those to go from living room to race course? And once we work out where the issues are, that's when we can that's when we can make a change and actually address the issues that come up. But I think, again, it's all about capturing data and finding out those issues. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, just returning to yourself, now we went back to riding the morning line. Where did we get to and what happened after that to get to you where you are today? Oh, a, a, a long story. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got um, that long. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I don't, I don't want to keep you forever. Uh, but uh, breaking it down, basically, um, I wasn't able to be a jockey. Uh, my height and weight meant I just could not uh, be a professional jockey. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to claim. So there would have been my professional jockey career would have gone down up in flames. Um, I went to university. I went to university in Cheltenham. I studied journalism at the University of Gloucestershire. Had a dream. Loved it. Um, after that, I then got onto the what's now the British Horse Racing's development program. Uh, I was on what's called the graduate program. I'm glad they've changed it to the development program. Um, it was brilliant. Uh, changed my life completely. I spent four months at Great British Racing uh, in the BHA office at High Holborn. And then I went and worked at Newmarket Stud and did six months at the National Stud doing their course there, which was Again, I call life-changing probably the best decision ever made. Um, I gave me a massively different um, idea on racing and a different perspective because I'd not been involved in breeding or bloodstock beforehand. And now I would call myself a bit of a, a nerd about bloodstock because I love it. I love breeding. I love bloodstock. I, I find it just as exciting as racing. And um, I then went to New Zealand. I followed time test to let Lavendale start. And I did yearning prep over there. And yeah, that was, that was spectacular. I, I love New Zealand. It's got a, a massive soft spot in my heart. I said they, they have their own issues, uh, but it's, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth and some of the most amazing people. I've met some brilliant people out there. 
came home, coronavirus, uh, worked in a gin distillery uh, because there was, there was a local one um, about five minutes walk away from my house. So I, I worked in there as an admin assistant. Uh, I started off packing boxes and then as an admin assistant and was fortunate enough to get some part-time work for Goff at the bid spotter. And through Goff, I then got my position at Sky. And I'm now a researcher at Sky and uh, Sky Sports Racing. And I love it. And like I said, like I, I'm very lucky. I do a job that I love in, in a sport that I'm very passionate about. Uh, I am quite happy to have a couple of we- a week and a half off because it's been a very, very busy few months. Uh, but I, I love it. I, I go and smoke every day. I do 12, 14 hour days every day. And I absolutely love it. And I'm also quite slow. But <laughs> I do it. <laughs> And who are your, you've said somebody already, but who are your racing heroes, both jockeys and horses and trainers? Um, McCoy, uh, jockey. Um, yeah, just um, different gear. Absolutely different gear. Um, I still I still remember that Wichita alignment ride. Uh, oh, it's on your Cheltenham. Twitter page, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's the first it's, thing it's, on there. It's, yeah, it's, it's the thing that I always, I always say to people, like, if you ever... If you ever want to see exciting sport, go and watch horse racing, but specifically go on YouTube and watch that race. The horse doesn't jump a fence and it still wins and it's just brilliant. And he then went on and got beaten in the champion hurdle, which no one ever talks about, but <laughs> he did. Um, but no, McCoy was massive for me, sporting-wise. Uh, Equine-wise, I was a huge Denman fan. Um, I, I love horses that go from the front, put the heart on the sleeves and eat their fences and I'm a big national hunt racing fan as you probably worked out um but uh yeah Denman was a horse that I followed over the hill like I would have I would have run through a brick wall for that horse but I think he did it for his trainer every time he ran um modern day um I'm a massive massive uh, James Doyle fan I, I really like James Doyle. I love the way he rides I love the way he does it for the tall jockeys <laughs> someone who's over the average height for a jockey um, I love I love what he does for Godolphin. I love what Godolphin have done with the pairing of him, him and Buick, and the way that works, and how on the surface how palatable it seemed, and how comfortable both riders seemed with the outcome of all of it. And uh, yeah, that would be my flat inspiration. I'm a, yeah, James Doyle would be my my flat my flat inspiration. Yeah, um, but uh, yes, I'm very lucky to be able to be part of the sport that I've held so close to my heart since I was eight years old, and like I've been involved with these animals since I was five. So. I'm very, very blessed and I just enjoy it. I really do. And, and, and I thank you for having me so I can tell everybody how much I enjoy it. Well, no, it's, it's very good to hear. It's, it's always good to hear people who love their work and, and particularly on the subject we've been talking about this afternoon. So are you positive that British racing can embrace more diversity and inclusion over the next few years? It doesn't want to be long term. It needs to be relatively short term that things do change. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I believe in the people who are currently out there trying to make change. And I think that was the great thing about this conference that I was at at Windsor was that it was full of people who were not just ideas people. They were doers. And there are lots of great ideas. But you know when you can go to these sorts of events and everyone's got great ideas, but as soon as the event finishes, everyone goes home and doesn't think about it. I was surrounded by great people, great people who had good thoughts, but knew how to execute those thoughts you have to create plans and just doing that next step and i think we are we're very lucky to have some very very smart people within this industry very very good people who all want to make changes to make sure this industry remains sustainable and because if we don't it won't be sustainable and um 
yeah, we'll, we'll all lose the sport we love so much. So I'm glad. I think we're in really good hands and I think things will only improve. And to all those people on Twitter who have a different opinion, that's absolutely fine too. But we have evidence that we're making a change and I don't see the evidence of remaining the same is going to work. So, um, yeah, c- come, come at Stephen all you want on Twitter. Come at <laughs> Put all your mean comments, whatever. But we have the evidence to suggest that increased diversity will help our industry. Staying stagnant, remaining the same will not be sustainable and will lead us down a path which, is, which will be a sad end, really, to a great sport. So I just hope, I hope that people will begin to understand that this isn't changing for the sake of changing. This isn't woke. This isn't anything like that. This is trying to make the industry more sustainable. So all of us can keep enjoying the sport that we love so much. Well, thank you. Well, horse racing needs to reflect society, doesn't it, in a positive way? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And diversity within every single other industry is shown to be a positive thing. So whether it's a societal reflection or not, it's positive. So, so let's, let's, let's embrace it and, let's, and give it a try. Well, on that note, thank you very much for being such a positive and entertaining guest on The Paddock and the Pavilion. Thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate you having me on The Paddock and the Pavilion. I've, I really, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pav. Sports Social Podcast Network.